0: If you have your Bible with you, you can, or your phone if you want to use that, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. You can go there. And I want to begin, as you're turning there, with just a question. And the question I want to begin with is simply this. uh, What do you want from a church? Now, let me just say uh, that I know that this is is true for a lot of people, especially when there's relocations happening and uh, new communities, and you're kind of trying to find a church. And so, I know a lot of times, being in ministry for 16 years, i uh, been in ministry, part two church plants. Uh, this is the only one I've ever planted. Pray that it's the only one I ever have to plant. People look for things at churches, right? You look for maybe uh, a good-sounding team. You're like, oh, I like the way he sounds or she sounds. like the music. The music is good, not my style of music. So you have a desire for music. Or maybe you look for a good kids' ministry program, you know, where the kids have fun or you feel safe or you look for a, a funny, engaging communicator, you know, not too serious but not too light, you know, dresses, how it feels comfortable, you know, not too stiff, not too long, not too short. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah? I wasn't talking about height. I was talking about short and sermon. You're like, yeah, he's too short. Um, anyways, so, you know, it's just, we do, we go in and we have these thoughts about churches and the kind of churches that we're looking for. Maybe it's just to meet people, connect with people, people that are like you. In fact, I was at a church conference years ago and I heard that one of the questions that, that if not the only question, that was the first question that people ask when they visit churches is, is there someone like me? That you're just looking for people like you or that you can get around or have community with and friendship with. And I think all that's, all that's fine. But here's, you could just write this down in your notes as we kind of launch into this series and the heart behind this series. And I think there's no problem with anything I just stated. I get it. You're looking for the church that fits you best and that you like and that kind of thing. I, I get that. But here's the reality. You can write this down in your notes and hopefully you have your sermon notes. If you don't have sermon notes, shoot your hand up and someone will bring one to you. But write this down in your notes, okay? You won't grow, where you're not planted. You won't grow where you're not planted. In other words, it doesn't matter what church or what body you're, you're a part of, if you don't get planted there, you won't grow. And this is a problem that I personally do see, and if we're honest today, and we're just being transparent a little bit with this, this is an issue I just want to address because it's the elephant in the room, and I see it happening amongst many churches all across, uh, you know, in our culture and Western church world. I talk to pastors from all over the nations, and this is just a reality we see. We see, and it centers around this idea of transplant. We see this to be truth in church. In fact, uh, we've been in the community for just about seven years, and the church across the street uh, just moved in just a couple of months back or so. Me and him talked a little bit, and we, there was this candid conversation. I know what's going to happen. Someone at some point is going to get mad at me, and they are just going to transplant into another church plant. And then he, we had this conversation over dinner at my house, and he said, yeah, and someone's going to get mad at me, and they're just going to transplant back over to you or transplant somewhere else. And we see this tension In our world, around our nation, which I think is, it's great in one way that there's churches on every corner or there's churches all around, but the reality is, I think it's causing a little bit of a problem. And it centers around this idea of transplanting. And the reality is this that people just hop around from different churches or different bodies, never getting rooted, and the body of Christ suffers as a result. And no spiritual fruit is produced in a person's life because they choose to never really get rooted. And that's what this whole series is about. It doesn't matter if you go to a smaller church or a larger church, but the reality is there's just, there's just a lot of people in the Christian community. It happens amongst churches where they want to go somewhere where nobody knows their name. It's like the opposite. Do you remember the show Cheers? Cheers you want to go, where everybody knows your name. But, but, do you remember that show? Some of you? Okay, good. And, um, and so you, you know, this is a reality that people face, and a lot of people go to larger churches intentionally, so no one knows you. So you don't have to get rooted, you don't have to get planted, you don't have to get pruned, no. But the reality is, that leaves us stuck in a spiritually dry place. And this whole series is kind of around this idea of getting rooted. When I was uh, off a couple of weeks back, elders, of course, encouraged me to take some time off, so I took some time off, and in prayer, I felt like, and I rarely use this language, especially from the platform up here, and say it this way, the word of the Lord, you know, but I felt really like the Lord did give me a word for this church in the season, not just for today, but in a season, that from here through December, he was calling me, and I think he's calling our church family. And if you're here today, I believe he's calling you. And he would just want to say this. You need to get rooted. It's time to get rooted. Because he wants to see spiritual fruit produced in our life. And I'm going to show you that why and kind of unpack that over the next few weeks as we dive into this series. And here's, write this in your notes, the key truth. Spiritual growth is the result of an intentional commitment to longevity this is where it gets tough. In our culture, in our world, with our schedules and all that we have going on, the reality is that word longevity becomes more of a tension for many people. But the reality is, is there has to be a degree of longevity in order for the roots to be able to kind of, to take, to take root, I guess, if that makes sense. I, um, me, my wife, and I, we, we moved into uh, our community neighborhood two years ago, and we bought our house there, and one thing I realized is that uh, new builders don't always put the best plants in your front lawn. They don't use the most expensive ones. I don't know if you recognize that or not, and um, anybody recognize that at all? You're like, okay, who, who, who chose these landscaping? But um, anyways, uh, just a couple of months back, I was out in my yard, and Uh, around the AC unit. They put like the worst plants, it seems like, and, and just ugly and just didn't make any sense. But anyway, so I went out there two years into it, and I thought, well, I'm gonna have to get a shovel, gonna have to dig around. I was able to take my hand, just a little wiggle, and right up. And I'm like, man, they really put that in there good, didn't they? Like, you know, two years later. And I think, to some degree, that becomes something that we find ourselves in. Again, going back to that illustration, it was just kind of hopping around, not just church hopping. In fact, I've heard people looking for churches and they say, hey, are you, are you looking for a church? Yeah, yeah, just church hopping. You know, just kind of hopping around. And how long have you been church hopping? A couple of years, you know, just still church hopping and never getting rooted. And I think that's an absolute play, listen to me, an absolute play from the enemy because if you never get rooted, you never produce fruit. And if you don't produce fruit, everyone suffers. Not just you, everyone suffers for that. Because God's not able to do all the work that he wants to do in your life. So I believe he's calling us to get rooted. I pray that this be a season that you get rooted. And it's not just in church. I'm going to show you. But more importantly, in just the church. It's not just about church. No, no, no. about getting rooted in Christ. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Getting rooted in Christ. I titled the message, Decision Time. And here's why getting rooted matters so much, and I want you to just really lean into this whole series, I hope, and I, and I pray you do, because rootedness leads to fruitfulness, or roots before fruit. You could say it that way if you want, okay? Rootedness leads to fruitfulness, and I want to show you this. In Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus talks about this on a number of occasions, but certainly Matthew chapter 7, uh, we're going to kind of focus in on today. So Matthew 7, Jesus is preaching his most powerful sermon. People call it the Sermon on the Mount, right? And uh, just filled with all kinds of uh, stuff that you love to hear about preached on. If you walk into Jesus' church, you're like, that's what I want you to preach on. He kicks off talking about happiness. How do you get happy? Blessed is the man, pure in spirit. Blessed is the man, blessed is the meek. He starts talking about blessedness, which means happy. Then he talks about, and not just in order, but he talks about prayer. Matthew chapter 6, this is how you pray. This is how you talk to God. He talks about fasting. He talks about worry he talks about money he talks about adultery he talks about divorce he talks about all kinds of things and then towards the end of his sermon if you're reading Matthew 5 6 and then into 7 towards the end of Matthew 7 this is where we're beginning to pick up and he begins like a good sermon person he's preaching so good Jesus is such a good teacher he ends up landing the plane and now he's going to put the audience that's listening to him in a position to make a decision when Jesus speaks, it calls for a response. And he speaks not for just engagement, not for entertainment, not for laughs. He's going to push his audience and to a point, they've got to make a decision. Which is why I titled the sermon, Decision Time. There's going to have to be a decision that you make. And this is where Jesus is going to push them. All right, So Matthew chapter 7. It's this idea that rootedness leads to fruitfulness, and this is where we'll pick up. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. We'll put it up on the screens. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So you see him kind of using these comparisons of some people go through the narrow, some people go through the wide now he pushes into more of a decision. Verse 15, he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Then he says, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, that's going to be an important word we'll talk about in a minute. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus is simply using, and we're going to see this throughout Scripture. If you read through Scripture, you'll find this to be true, and certainly you'll see Jesus do it here, uses a simile. The comparison of one thing with another thing of a different kind. And so he says, you're not a tree, but you're like a tree. Uh, You're not like a tree of good fruit or bad fruit, but you're kind of like a tree that has good fruit, and then there's some with bad fruit. And Jesus is teaching his audience that those who follow me are people that produce good fruit. There's good fruit in their lives, but if they don't follow me, there's bad fruit in their lives. And it's not that they are trees with fruit. They're just like trees with bad fruit. And he's pushing on this idea, helping his audience understand the difference between those who follow him and those who don't. And the difference, he says, is their fruit. What's he saying? He's saying, when people follow me, there should be a change in their behavior. There there should be a, a shift in the way they talk or in the way they act. There should be a change. And if you look at the scope of Scripture, when you think about the entire text of Scripture, you will see God calling his people to grow. Over and over and over again, he is challenging from the nation of Israel to the people going through the promised land stuff, all the trials and different kings. He is constantly pushing people to grow. To grow. Why? Because they're ultimately calling us to become more like him. And even though many times he'll call, we'll see this later on in Jeremiah 18, where he'll call a nation to grow, but he's really going to put down to the individual. So it's not just nation, just the government's responsibility, but he ends up putting it on the people as well. And he wants us to grow. He wants the church to grow, not just in size, not just numerically for numeric sake, but no, he wants the body of Christ to grow. He wants you to grow in love. He wants you to grow in patience. He wants you to grow in kindness. He wants us to grow in generosity. We're always should be growing is the heart of God for his people. He wants his people to grow. Then in verse 21, he continues in the teaching. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think this is so interesting. Watch what he says. But only the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. Now many will say to me on that day when he returns, Lord, Lord, do not prophesy, uh, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, a lot of times, I don't know, I grew up in a youth ministry uh, in South Dallas. And so I remember that message being preached by my youth pastor at the time. And uh, it was more about hell and how you're, you know, you, you're just scaring you into hell, you know. And I remember one time they actually did this. This is not in my notes, but it just comes to my mind. They actually turned up the heater in the room so that it would get hot. That's a true thing. And that was like supposed to be an illustration it just tell us what hell was like, you know? Anyway, so we're not doing that here. That, that's not intention. There was no correlation to that. Here's what Jesus is doing. And I want you to see this verse. And where Jesus, where this verse falls is really important. Jesus has just told people it's by their fruits. You're going to see the change in their life. You'll see the behavior shift. That's how you're going to see my disciples. That's how you're going to see my people. There will be a change in them. But I think this is why he inserts this into this moment. He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to his religious leaders. He's talking to an audience of people, and he's wanting his disciples, people who have read the Torah, thinking it's all about obedience, but he's trying to shift that. Yes, you should see a change in behavior, but, but it's not based on behavior. Notice what he's saying. A lot of people are going to have good behavior. They cast out demons in my name, prophesied in my name, but I never knew them. So what's Jesus saying? Don't get it twisted. It's not based on your behavior. Paul would later, later, uh, later on write in Ephesians chapter 2, we're saved by grace through faith. He's pushing on something. He's letting them know, behavior change, I should seek, yes. But that's not the requirement to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because a lot of people are going to think they have good behavior, but behavior doesn't get you in. I never knew you. Important teaching of where he puts that into place so that people understand it's by the grace of God that we're saved. Amen. Verse 24. He uses another simile in his sermon, and here's what he says. And this is how he wraps up this whole sermon on the mount. One of his greatest sermons, this is how he wraps it up. This is his final story before he walks off the platform, so to speak. In verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, because he's just preached a whole sermon, and puts them into practice, practice is like a wise man. He's like a wise man. I'm not calling him a wise man, but he's like a wise man, who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Let me give you two definitions as we unpack this parable, this teaching here from Jesus. Okay? Wisdom. Wisdom simply means the willingness to apply spiritual, uh, spiritual truth to life circumstances. I can have the knowledge, but wisdom is the application of the knowledge. I can take the knowledge in, but I have the wisdom enough to apply it into the right situations and circumstances as I go throughout my life. Foolishness, okay? The foolishness is the unwillingness. I, I have the knowledge. I heard the word spoken to me. I know the right thing to do, but I elect willingly not to do it. Now, we use the word in our home, stupid. That's what we use. You don't have to use that word. I know we're bad parents. We're like, that was dumb. That was stupid. And uh, then my kids correct me. Dad, you can't say stupid. I'm like, well, actually, I think I might be able to argue that biblically with you. I know. Don't call your kid stupid. It's bad parenting. I'm not the best parent. I'm a work in progress. But he says, you're a fool. How foolish of you. You know what to do, but you're willingly electing not to do it. This is the foolish man, but then there's a wise man. And he's making this simile comparison to help his audience understand. There's two men. There's two trees. There's two men. He's making this point about a decision. You have the knowledge that you need, but you've ultimately made the decision to not listen to do what I'm telling you to do. You are a foolish person. You have no wisdom. You have knowledge, but you don't apply it to your life. So in the story, you see these two men, one wise, one a fool. Notice this also, by the way, that our profession of our faith will always lead to testing of our faith. Anytime you begin to declare God as truth, as leader of your life, or ruler of your life, you'll get tested in those areas of life. Jesus wanted his audience to know hearing must result in doing. Not that doing gets you into heaven, but it's the result of hearing. The wise man, this is what I want for you. So follow me on this. Listen, Jesus concludes his whole Sermon on the Mount with a story about two men. One on rock, one on sand. Here's where I'm headed with this. Listen to me. It centers around rootedness. You could argue stability might be a better word. What's he pushing on? He said, there's a wise man and he's got a firm found we just said this, uh, sang the song a little bit ago. Firm foundation. He's on a rock. There's rootedness. There's stability to that. That's what wise people do. They get rooted in the right things. And I think that's absolutely intentional. If you ever notice, notes, write this in. The difference between stability and instability in faith is obedience to God's word. That's not my saying. That's Jesus' teaching right there in Matthew chapter 7. The difference between these two houses, one that was stable, one that was instable, was the one that simply took the Word of God and then applied the Word of God. They obeyed the Word of God. They heard the teaching and then did it. They followed through with it. That's how you know if you have a a house built on the Word of God. I follow the Word of God. I do what it says to do. And I think there's a reality that we cannot miss if we want to build our home, our marriages, our kids' faith on a firm foundation, listen, this is so, so, so important, it's going to require more effort and more intentionality. The reality is if you want to build your family's faith, your children's faith, your grandchildren's faith, your marriage on Christ, it requires more effort. And I think of the man who's wise, who's building his house on rock, takes more time. Maybe there's more digging. Maybe it's a little harder. Maybe it's a little more tension. you got to put more effort into it. Versus if you build your house on sand, maybe a little cheaper route. Take the easy route. We'll just watch online. We won't get involved. We'll just kind of dibble-dabble into it. We'll just kind of hop around. We won't really get too serious about it. We can go to church on Sunday, but we won't have to talk about it too much Monday through Saturday. And so he's like, you've got to really get rooted. You've got to get on stable ground. I wrote this down to just two questions, and I hope this helps you. Look at the two trees and the two houses that Jesus talks about in the previous passages I just read. How do you know which one you are? How do you know if you're like the tree that bears good fruit or the bad tree, right? Or are you the house built on sand, house built on rock? Well, here's a question I would propose to you that you could begin to ask. Am I still changing into his likeness? And the word is still changing. Am I still becoming more like him? Key truth, followers of Jesus desire to be like Jesus. So how do you know if you're like the good tree? You want to be a bad tree, bad fruit, good tree, good fruit? How do I know? Am I still trying and forming and changing to be more like him? Or have I given up on that? I have no desire to be like him. Question two, how do I respond to trials? You look at these two houses, one on rock, one on the sand, and then, of course, you see what's true and common. They all face the same storm. Wind, storm, rain came. Everything comes at it the same. Here's why it's so important to understand why trials in life are used by God in order to shape us. James, the brother Jesus talks about in James 1, right, that, that this whole trials produce joy and then somehow God uses trials in our life. Here's why. Write this down in your notes. Trials of life expose the foundation of our life. Did you catch that? Do you have this trials and then the trials expose which one was on the right foundation? When you face trials in life, it exposes where your faith is. It exposes the foundation of your faith. Another way of saying it could be, trials expose where you're rooted. What are you rooted in? Is what I'm pushing on this morning for us as a church family. What are you you rooted in? Now, I say all that to say, because we're going to unpack in just a second, you're going to be blown away by what's about to happen in Scripture. And I don't know if you've ever caught this, But Jesus teaches this in Matthew chapter 7. I just read it to you. And Jeremiah the prophet, back at Jeremiah 18, if you want to go there, you can. Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah is a prophet of God, and he is going to deliver a very, very, uh, in common sermon, so to speak. Very similar sermon, not necessarily in style or in approach, but it's going to leave his audience to make a decision about what they're going to get rooted in. And, They were begun, they begun to be rooted in the wrong things, and they were seeing instability in their nation. Anyone see any instability in the nation that you live? Okay, so there was some instability, and he's going to push on the nation, but he's also talking to the people who live in the nation, not just to the persons or the people up top. He's going to push on this instability, and he's going to connect it that the issue goes down to the roots, It's the same thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7. So Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah is called by God to preach to a nation and to tell a nation they need to get rooted in him. This is not a sermon centered around entertainment. And I'm going to let that hang because this sermon is not a sermon around entertainment. Or engagement, I hope maybe in some way you're still engaged, yes, but that is not the heart of this sermon. It certainly wasn't at the heart of Jesus' sermons. Engaging, yeah. Transforming, absolutely. Jeremiah is called to give a message to people of Judah. And here's what God says to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So this is a message direct from God. Go down to the potter's house, and there I'll give you a message. So I, Jeremiah, went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the... I have an image of the movie Ghost in my head now. Sorry. Totally messed me up. All right. See, Ghost fans, remember that? Yeah, Terrible. All right, so he says, I saw this guy making some clay and was marred in his hands. Marred means there begins to be pushback tension. There begins to be a disruption to it. It's not forming the way it was supposed to form. So look what the potter did. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. The potter decided how he was going to shape the pot based on how the pop was responding to his hands now watch the word of the Lord came to me in this moment so God sends him to watch a guy do work he's watching the guy and then God speaks to him as he's watching this guy work and here's what God says can I not do with you Israel as the potter does Like clay, again, using a like clay. It's not that you are clay, but you're like clay. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation, a kingdom, is to be uprooted, torn down, destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned goodness. Decision time. Decision time. If I want to uproot you and take you out and plant you here, I can plant you here. But if you push back on some things, and if you don't mean allow that, then I can plant you back in here, and I can move you wherever I decide to move you and to plant you. This is what he's pushing on. But the nation does something completely foolish, and they haven't learned their lesson, even though he sends Jeremiah to to give this sermon to them. He says, and if at another time, verse 9, I announce that a nation, a kingdom, is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight, in other words, I've said, man, it's time to get planted. I want you to get planted. It's time to grow. It's time to build. It's time to do this. It's time to do that. If I decide that for the the time being, for that particular uh, church plan or church body or individual or nation, he says, but if it does evil in my sight and does not, look at Matthew 7, look at Jeremiah 18, does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I intended to do for it. This is not a sermon about entertainment. God is telling a nation, I have so much goodness for you, and there's so many things I want to do through you, and I can plant you win, and I can uproot you however I want to uproot you, But listen to me, I want to do great things through you. Gosh, I'm waiting to do great things and let you build up and grow up and produce harvest in your life. The tension, you're not putting yourself in my hands. You're refusing to get rooted in me. Watch what he says. He goes on, verse 11. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. When God says, I'm preparing disaster for you, you might want to reconsider listening to him. And he's, but they don't. Look what he says. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you. So this is individual. This isn't a call just to a nation. It's to each one of you in the room today listening to the sound of my voice. He says, and reform your ways and your actions change your behavior, but they will reply like foolish people, like a bad tree that bears bad fruit, and a house that's built on sand, and they simply refuse. It's no use. We're going to continue. Look at this. That was so good with our own plans. Now, I say that's good because I want to show you something by that in just a minute. Gosh, he says, with our own plans, we have our own plans. We have our own desires. We have our own wants. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Next time that God says to do something and you say no, instead replace no with, I'm going to follow my own foolishness sounds good no you don't say that because it's like well, that seems dumb but yeah because it is It's but this nation is there and they crumble for it years later you'll see the Babylonian empire comes in takes over destroys it and they lead into captivity and they lose their nation and they lose power and everything that God said was going to happen happened and then God help us it's like, I tried, but you refused to get rooted in me because you wanted to follow your own ways. You knew the better path. You had a better plan. And God is using the same simile and the same teaching. People are not pottery. You know the difference between you and clay? You have a choice. Clay does not. Pottery doesn't have a choice. You do. That's his whole point. You have a choice here, and how you choose can determine how, what happens on the backside, whether you get this or you get this. But there's a degree of choice here that you have to make. It's decision time. And based on how you make a decision, it's ultimately going to dictate what happens on the backside. Can I turn all evil for good? Yes, I'm the redeemer, so even when you made dumb choices, I can still flip that around. If you turn back to me, then I can redeem it. But if you stay in your path, the same consequences will result. And if I was a really bad person, I'd smash the tree, and I'd say, that's what's going to happen to you. But I'm not, because I know there's some really, like, people the plants here, like, please don't hurt the plants. This is God's teaching. I hope you hear my heart in this sermon today. Either they were going to place themselves in the hands of the potter or they were going to resist him. This is a direct choice that they had to make. Jeremiah watches as the potter changes his plan based on how the vessel responded to his shaping. But the people of Jerusalem... Did not want to put themselves into God's hands because they simply wanted to control their own lives. Key truth: Write this into your notes. To be rooted in Christ is simply to choose to be rooted in a relationship with Christ. It's a choice you make to be in a relationship. Three quick verses: Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you the testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Colossians 2, 6 says, So then, just as you've received Christ, Paul writes, as Jesus' Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness with fruit. And then John 15, last verse, remain in me, Jesus says, as also I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. The first step to get rooted in Christ is simply to choose to put yourself in the potter's hands. Surrender your life to him. Every Christ follower who's produced fruit in their life at first made a decision to give their life to the Lord. And that's all through Scripture and all through this room. Talk to any person who follows Christ today, devoted follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Christ, and they can point back to at some point they made a decision, a choice to put themselves into his hands. And keep this in mind if you choose to make that decision. Like John the Baptist who said, I become less and you become more. Following Jesus is really about what you say no to. You say no to your plans, no to your desires, no to self-promotion, and instead yes to his plans, yes to his will, and yes to his promotion, glorifying him. I wrote this quote down somewhere, and I saw it this morning, and it jumped out at me, and I thought, I need to just read this quote. I wrote down that I realized that my life is the best when I'm not the most important thing in it. When you begin to realize, and this is on me, when I begin to realize that my life is not, I am not the most important person, man, life actually begins to open up. Stepping away from the church for a period of time, and stepping in, watching all of this still continue to function, I'm like, man, it's so good. Man, it was like a realization. Like, you know what? The truth is, you don't need me. Amen. Man, it's good when you just see that God, God is in control of all things. And, and you put things over in his hands. To choose Christ, the last right in, to choose Christ is to empty our lives so he can fill our lives. Is to put our life in his hands. And that's what this series is about. I'll bite the van forward. But I want to say something about, you know, what's all this come down to? And I wrote this in and I want to make sure I get it right. So I want to read it to you. Why do this? Why put yourself into his hands? And I'll come back to this throughout the series from time to time. Why put myself into his hands? I I would pick it up, but I don't want to keep destroying it because I'm like the worst gardener in the world, but I did leave it there. But you can imagine it in my hands, okay? But why put yourself into his hands? Like, why would you do that? Listen, I have a question for you. Does anyone in this room, you would say, just just kind of a little bit, just shoot your hand up, and if you need to put it back down so no one sees you, that's fine, we're not gonna call you up here. But if you're in this room and you'd say, man, I could use a little more peace, my anxieties and things, and just feel like I get get to a place of peace. Just shoot your hand up for a second. Put your hand down. You're like guys. Now, don't put your hand up on this one, because this is just. A, I, want, I want the Holy Spirit to minister to you. Every week, we say, you know, what's the Holy Spirit saying? What's God speaking to you? Okay, you didn't come to hear me, by the way. Don't don't come here to hear me. I hope you hear Him. Listen. You don't want to say it now, and you don't don't raise your hand because I'm not trying to cause a conversation, especially now. But if your marriage really your marriage it's like gosh this is not where I'd like it to be it's this is, it's getting tough pull it all back real conversation it's it's getting close to calling it quits you may have had thoughts about it you haven't said it yet but you know it's getting frustrating Go, man! I I could use a little more stability in our home. Maybe in your home, just laughter. You, you see the schedule and all the things going on. You're like, do we ever laugh? I feel like everything is go, go, go! Grab your bag, run fast, go, go! You know, it's like that's my house. Like, dude, get chill jail for a second. You just laugh. The Holy Spirit talked one time. I was praying. And I was talking with him about parenting. And he told me, he said, uh, I felt like the one, you know, God spoke to me and he said, laughter is good medicine. Lined up with his word, okay? And it was just a push to me. You need, you need to have some more laughter, Ricky. If you don't bring laughter, they'll go find it somewhere else. So maybe you need more joy, you know. Peace in your mind. Stability in your marriage. And for some of you, it's like maybe